Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to take a look at protecting your crown jewels. And I have a special guest today, the CEO and founder of Key Caliber, and I think you're going to enjoy listening to what she has to say. And as always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. As we've discussed before, effective risk management helps us protect our assets. What's sometimes missing in discussions is the answer to the question, what are our most important assets? These become what are known as our crown jewels. Failure to protect them is fundamentally a failure of security leaders to understand the business priorities of your organization. Traditional risk management involves models such as FAIR, the Factor Analysis of Information Risk. The nonprofit FAIR Institute promotes a FAIR framework that breaks down risk into loss event frequency and loss magnitude. Basically, how likely is it to occur and how bad can it be? Frequency consists of two components, threat event frequency and vulnerability. Essentially, how frequently will the threat actor make contact with our asset and what's the likelihood that contact will result in adverse action? And what's the threat's capability to and our ability to resist, you know? And then loss magnitude will be a combination of primary loss and secondary loss, the latter addressing follow-on results of the primary loss. Now, a lot of terminology there, and I went through it very quickly for a reason. The FAIR model and its equivalents are important, and they're important enough that I'm going to devote an entire episode to taking a closer look. But for now, I wanted to ask you, did you notice something? In my description of the model, we address threat frequency, vulnerability, frequency of contact, probability of action, threat capability, resistance strength, loss magnitude, primary loss, and secondary risk. But nowhere did our model address the question, what's most important? So today I want to offer you some ideas on how to extend our risk model beyond simple technical analysis to include business analysis. After all, you've got to earn that C in CISO. And the way to do that is to show your peers and superiors that you get the business in which you're working. To that point, what I'm suggesting is, is that if you're protecting security assets and you're going through your IT environment and simply protecting things because you think they're important without effectively taking a look at, are they really critical to the organization? You might be missing something. When security is misaligned with the business, is that's usually the foundational cause for why things go badly. At the layer eight level, at the political level within your organization, if you're unable to go ahead and communicate effectively that you get what the risk is to the organization, then you risk being marginalized and not being brought in to key decisions. As a result, what happens is that you don't get the information you need. You protect the wrong things. Because you're protecting the wrong things, they don't think you get it. You get the wrong information. And ultimately, we see that culminating in major breaches. Loss of access or loss of confidentiality or the compromise of integrity of critical business assets that should have been protected but weren't. So don't go down that one-way road, which is going to be a lack of success. Instead, let's focus on figuring things out the correct way. And to be able to do so, 
I'm fortunate enough to have somebody who is an expert in that field. And today I'm happy to have in our studio Roselle Safran, who's the CEO and founder of Key Caliber. And she's done a lot of work with regard to risk and can tell you how she's both operationalized it, used it in her job and her career, as well as, uh, well, creating some tools and capabilities that perhaps may be useful to CISOs everywhere. Welcome to the show, Roselle. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about, well, you know, who you are and what you do and, and kind of how, how you got here? Yeah. So I'm a cybersecurity professional turned engineer, uh, turned entrepreneur here. So I spent many years on the operational side of cybersecurity. I uh, led the malware and forensic analysis teams at, at the, part, the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. CERT. And then after that, I led cybersecurity operations at the executive office of the president during the Obama administration. And so spent lots of years uh, as, as a network defender. And, and then because I had all that experience and I saw where there were technology gaps and I saw what was working, it wasn't working. Then I switched gears to the entrepreneurial side. And Key Caliber is my second cybersecurity startup. And the pain point that we're addressing is based largely on my experiences. And what I saw was, was really lacking when, when I was leading a, a security team. And that's just around understanding what's most critical and uh, what, what are those critical assets connected to and what's, what's the risk to them. Now, that's interesting. I mean, I remember in our discussions, yeah, for everybody else there. So we met up at Black Hat uh, this past month and hotel lobbies being loud and air conditioned. We sat outside in 106 degree temperatures and we're doing just fine. It's like, I'm comfortable. You're comfortable. And we talked about all this stuff and I thought, I'd just love to have you on the show. So you said that's your second startup, which is really cool. Uh, what was your first startup, if I may? We back up a little bit because I think for some people, we work in the security world, we see problems, we kind of go, oh, man, I got to live with it. And other people say, I can fix that. But there's a huge jump between I'm working here and I'm getting a paycheck to I'm out on my own and I'm going to go try to let go and see what happens. So, so there's probably a story in there as well as talking about risk because ultimately, well, it's really sort of a lot of people perceive that as a very risky thing. So what, were, what was going through your mind the first time you decided to go ahead and just say, let me give it a shot? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it was going from sort of one end of the spectrum to, to the other because when you're a government, government employee and we're in that industry for as long as I had been. You, you, you know, you can stay there for the rest of your career, and it is is quite stable and quite reliable and quite comfortable. But for me, I I like lots and lots of change, and I I love building. So when I was at the Department of Homeland Security, I came up with a, a crazy idea and, and was essentially an intrapreneur there. So I saw that we had all these analysis teams that were developing all of these really important uh, and sophisticated findings, but we had no way of, of correlating that. And so I became the product owner for what was a threat intelligence platform before that term was even coined in the industry. And so I had that whole experience of 
having something just start out as, as my crazy idea and coming to fruition and, and being used and, and being of value and really helping with, with how the security operations were run. And so once I got the, the taste for that, then I, I knew I wanted to, to do that again. And I, I found it very exciting, very rewarding, and just very important for, for moving the, the industry forward. And that's what, what led me to want to, to move in that direction, despite the fact that starting a, a startup is a very risky and intense and in many ways, insane undertaking. And so, so yeah, so, and also many, many years before that, very early in my career, I had tried starting up a company and that one didn't really get off the ground, but it did also give me that bug for, for entrepreneurship and that never really went away. So really then for those people who are thinking about, yeah, is this risky? I think a lot of the risk is reduced by being able to take ownership of some of the elements of what you're trying to do. Because if we think about risk as being threat times vulnerability times asset impact, of course, the asset impact we're worried about is, well, can we feed our family or pay our bills? Because the biggest impact of going out on your own is just not having any income. Uh, the threat, of course, is the uncertainty, perhaps, although uncertainty is really kind of built into risk. So the, I guess the threat would be nobody wants to pay you for your idea because, of course, nobody has an ugly baby. And we start lots of companies and not all that many of them actually make it. Uh, but then the opportunity, though, to have some say in the matter really kind of puts things potentially more back into your advantage, right? Because you're not just going with the flow. And I've started businesses before as well. And what I tell people is if I lose one client, I'm okay. I still have four or five or six more. But if you lose your job, you're out. You've got nothing else. And so in one respect, being an entrepreneur is less risky from a cash flow perspective, but you've got to get multiple clients coming in the door. And so when you did your first one and you decided, okay, great, I've been able to work with threat intelligence, input for uh, SecOps and things such as that. Then you came over to key, your idea for Key Caliber. What was your idea behind that? What was it that you saw that needed to so get So for, for Key Caliber, that was around having very little understanding of what the, the crown jewels, the, the critical assets, the high value assets, whatever you want to call them, what, what those were. Because at the end of the day, that's the, the foundational element of a security program, or, or it should be. Because once you have an understanding of that, then you know what to, to build your, your program around and you know what to prioritize. And if you don't have that, then you're always going to be stuck in the situation of not optimizing your resources. And where I was working, we had very limited resources. And so optimizing was always top of mind. And I just didn't feel as comfortable as I wanted to about how we could optimize when we didn't have that, that level of understanding. And we weren't alone. I mean, most organizations back then and even today don't have a very good feel for what their, their, the full breadth of their critical assets are. 
And, and that's because unless they're a really tiny company, they have just a ton of complexity and they're relying on a very old school approach to try to figure out their critical assets. And that's usually conducting interviews and questionnaires every year or every couple years, and then putting all the responses into a big spreadsheet. And it's inherently inaccurate and, and out of date. And it's, it's completely subjective. And it's just this, this snapshot in time. And so it's a pretty unreliable input at that point. And having an unreliable input be foundational to your program, a little nerve wracking. And so, so that's why I, I really wanted to, to get at the heart of this problem because it's foundational. And if you have a strong foundation, then you know you can be confident that you can build a strong program around that. But if you know you have a weak foundation, then you've, it's unsettling. You, you know that there's the potential for, for a problem that, that you're just going to get blindsided by because you, you don't have that, that level of understanding. And I look at it from the perspective of we've spent so much time as an industry understanding the threat. And we can now say, well, this, this particular piece of malware is used by this APT that's in this country and has this motivation. We can get really detailed about the threat. But then the flip side of it is, can we be as detailed about ourselves? Can we say in that same level of detail that we know this is our most critical asset and, and this is where it is and this is, is the risk level on it? These are the controls that are on it. That's much, much harder to say. And it doesn't make a ton of sense when you think about it. We should understand ourselves at least as well as we understand the enemy, the, the, the adversary. And at this point, we're just really not there as an industry. And, and that's why I wanted to, to get that, that more to a, to a level playing field. So it's really kind of a business challenge for our security leaders to be able to start thinking in terms of what is valuable to the organization. One of the things we obviously don't want to find ourselves doing is protecting the trash can because, well, it looked interesting and it looked complex and therefore, wow, this must be good. When in fact, it may be a lack of understanding of the business environment that causes us to go ahead and protect, A, the wrong things in the first place and leave improperly or completely unprotected, the most important stuff. So therefore, a proper crown jewels analysis as an initial input ensures that we do better because although they say garbage in, garbage out, in, in this particular case, that could have a persistent effect. And so as the author Nito Cobain had said, garbage in, garbage stays, <laughs> and then it gets pregnant and gives birth to triplets. And we get really bad ideas and judgment. Then we hear about organizations going down because the ransomware took out mission critical systems that weren't protected, yet other systems might have been fully protected. So there's a fundamental change then in attitude for cybersecurity professionals to look at their organizations, not from a technical perspective, 
but from a business or operational or organizational perspective. Is that inherent in what you're recommending for either a methodology or an approach, or is there is there some other absolutely, way to do that? Absolutely, absolutely. That, that is spot on. And this has been something that, that's been talked about in, in the industry for the last few years, is that security operations needs to align with business operations. Because at the end of the day, security only exists to make the business better to to make that mission happen it's it's its whole function is to to make everything go smoothly and as it should and 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 if that is not the end goal for it then you're you're going to have this this complete misalignment and that's that's not going to help the security team and that, that's not going to help the the business side of it either and so, so that I think historically has been a challenge for security professionals. I know I've been in environments where people have said, I hate the SOC because they always thought of the security team as the department of no, that was the impediment to what they were trying to do. And it can't be that way. That's, that's, that's not the role of it at all. And the fact that it's viewed that way is is problematic, and it's something that, as an industry, we, we need to work on. And that starts with first understanding that the goal is to, of security is to make business operations run smoothly and to be as efficient as they can be, and or to 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 allow for that mission to be accomplished as as efficiently as possible, and 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 not to be in an impediment to to be. A, a way of of making that that process happen better. So, so yeah. So that business alignment is is really key, and I think historically it has been tough. It's so if you look at security as an as an industry, you know, it started out as sort of a backwater of IT and and just somewhat isolated, and and not not part of that business conversation. And now that is very much changing. The CISOs are reporting to the CEO. They're reporting to the board. There's, there's much more acknowledgement that security risk is business risk, and it has to be front and center. And so, so we are definitely moving in, in that direction. And, and so it's all part and parcel of the, the same issue of, making sure that, that security operations is aligned with business operations. And so what we're also seeing is a bit of a cultural shift in the role of a, a traditional security leader or CISO. The C, the chief, tends to mean you get to sit at the grown-ups <laughs> table. If you remember when we were kids at Thanksgiving, you know, we all had a little smaller table and, and mom and dad and the uncles and the aunts, they sat at the, the grown-ups table. Well, we have an opportunity to sit at the grown-ups table because cybersecurity has been pushed pretty much to the front, if not the top, of many agendas that are looked at by both senior management as well as boards of directors. Uh, but the problem is if we're not prepared to immediately engage in the language and in the priorities of that group, then we're going to be probably marginalized and pushed right back down to the kids' table saying, yeah, that's techno-geeky, babble stuff, is things like that. It's just not working. So inherent is part of our ability to be able to address risk 
from a business perspective. And, and we get that with the FAIR model, as we talked about previously. And from that perspective, now we can begin to change our communications. But one of the things that helps when someone says, well, how do we know? Where do you come off saying these things? Is to help to have some sort of a framework. Well, we've got control frameworks that list all the potential security technical controls. 853 gives us a gigantic Sears catalog of anything you'd ever want. And then we have program frameworks where we can go ahead, like ISO 27001 in, in that series, build out our security program, and then even risk frameworks that we can talk about. Uh, and even things like the MITRE ATT&CK model, where there's another framework. Well, what framework do we have, or have you created one, if there didn't exist one effectively, for asset classification, valuation, and then ultimately working its way into determining how do we improve our security protect function uh, as uh, chief security officer? So the way that, that we look at it at, at Key Caliber is first question you want to ask is, what do I need to protect? And, and that is something that can be relayed to the CEO and, and to the board in a way that they understand. And, and yes, the, the CISO is basically that translation layer of the, the, the technical side of it to, to the business side of it. And, and that's, that's, that's a commonality. But when you can say these assets, these, these are the ones that are, are critical, and you can explain that to the board, this is critical because this is the web server that our customers use. And this is the database that goes with that web server. And that's why this is an incredibly critical asset for our operations. And then you can sort of ground it in, in, in terms that, that can be understood, even for people that, that are not fully, fully technical. And then taking that a step further, when you, you want to assess the, the risk, so we, we use the, the FAIR methodology because at, at the heart of it, it is just a, a very simple equation of impact times likelihood, where the impact is the loss amount and, and the likelihood is, is the loss event frequency. And that, that impact amount is, is heavily dependent on whether it's critical or not. So if something is critical, then it's going to be a large chunk of the revenue loss if it goes down. And so, so that becomes a big factor for how you then compute with the, the FAIR methodology. So FAIR is, is great in, in creating a, a framework, a methodology for applying risk that can then be discussed and articulated for, for upper leadership. The challenge with it is in having the right inputs and getting to, to what you were saying before. And so part of why we, we have structured the, the product the way that we have is so that you're not just coming up with one score, one, you're not just coming up with one loss event frequency and one loss amount for an entire massive organization that's completely heterogeneous and constantly changing and and then you have no defensibility behind the numbers that you provide because then it looks like you're just pulling a number out of thin air when you have 20,000 assets and you somehow come up with some gigantic number and you can't dissect it at all to understand how that number was was reached and so so that's why we said no first step let's let's look at what's critical and when we talk about 
risk and when we talk about loss, we're talking about it within the context of those assets. Because at the end of the day, that's the lion's share of it. That's, that's the nature of it being critical. It's going to be orders of magnitude higher than the non-critical asset. And that's a really good point because although there might be a huge potential threat out there, if you don't have any assets that are vulnerable to that threat, who cares? For example, uh, we just recently had some really severe weather come up through, went through New Orleans as a category four, right? And then flooded out. Um, I got stuck at the airport for three hours yesterday waiting for the weather to pass over and of course hit New York and New Jersey and set some records there. Yet the same time you look out in California and they're facing these huge wildfires out there on the West and Lake Mead has got that 150 foot tall bathtub ring now because it's down at the lowest level they've recorded. And so what we see then is that, are you worried about a forest fire over in uh, New York? No, uh, we're worried about the flooding and the folks over there in California and Nevada say, I'd love to have a flood problem. I, that would really solve some other issue. I think therefore we, sometimes get deprioritized based upon the noise that the media makes. When we hear about some particular threat or whatever, it's almost like don't let a good crisis go to waste. It's a great way to get senior leadership attention when something major happens, there's a major hack or a ransomware attack or a supply chain attack or fill in the blank type of an issue. But how are we able to then translate that into our specific environment? There's a tool called a business impact analysis, which essentially looks at core critical business functions in the organization. And then based upon that and how long can you be out based upon certain threats, help to prioritize. Is that sort of approach part of your methodology to go through and say, enumerate what's out there and then kind of prioritize them based on the business impact rather than uh, just how much CPU it takes and things such as that? So we're, we're trying to, to get organizations off of the, this manual process of needing to mm -hmm. get input from all these different people in all these different divisions who have very different views of the world and very different motivations for their answers. And, and instead of, of using that paradigm, using one where the input is data. It's empirical data, so it's, it's not opinionated. And so what we look at is, is data, is the telemetry that the security stack is already generating. So data from your vulnerability scanner, from your, your network traffic, from your EDR, from your IAM, that type of data. Because that's, that's just factual data. It's just empirical data. And from that, we distill out what the, the business impact, what the, what's critical based on how it impacts operations. And so, so that required us to build quite sophisticated machine learning models. This is not something that works well with a rules engine. And we found that there historically been lots of hesitation to trying to make this manual process an automated one, because when people think of an automated one, they think of a rules engine. They think you're just going to say, well, if it gets a lot of traffic and it's a, a Linux operating system, then it's critical. Otherwise, it's not. And then it's going to miss all these different edge cases. And that's why 
just a straightforward rules engine, just you know, straight software engineering doesn't doesn't really work well for this this type of challenge. But on the flip side, machine learning does work very well for this because you are not just looking at one or two or three or 10 isolated variables. You're looking at a whole amazing array of variables and how they, they work together and how they, they change when they're, they're viewed in concert. And you're getting this whole profile of what something critical looks like. And then once you have this understanding, the models know, okay, this is what a concept of critical looks like, then that, that can be generalized and found in, in lots of different environments. And, and so that's the approach that, that we use. If you do try to just say, well, if X and Y and Z, then critical, yeah, that's, that's going to have lots of shortcomings. Right. So you, you kind of attribute the approach. This really sounds more like a data science Oh, it totally is. It? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's super data science heavy. Yes. Yeah. And are you a data scientist? I wish. Or did you just get some <laughs> super? <laughs> yeah. No. So, so we, we have an amazing team. We have, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, CTO backgrounds in machine learning and, and one of our key advisors, um, PhD in, in AI and ML. And so, so yeah, we, we definitely have um, expertise in, in that area. And that's the only reason why, why, why we could pull this off. Um, yeah, and that sounds like a very, very hard to find asset, which means that a lot of organizations can't even reproduce what you're creating. Uh, and so the idea that you set out to create something as a service that others can use really sounds like a good way to leverage that fairly scarce, specialized yeah, talent. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so well done on that one. And thank you for the contributions to the ecosystem and making things well, a little bit they, better. Yeah, honestly, like, at the end of the day, that is. That's really my, my biggest motivation but behind doing another startup. And it's a crazy ride, a really crazy ride to, to have a startup, especially in this industry, especially in this industry as a woman. And, um, and I had lots of friends and family members who, when I told them I was going to do a second one, they said, are you out of your mind? Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I did think about doing a startup in completely different industry. I had a couple ideas, but then I came back to cybersecurity because I really do want to help us to just get that, that playing field level. Because I know from, from my days on the operational side that it is not level. And, and we, have to, we have to get there in order for us to, to be in a position where, where we have an environment that, that actually works and, and we're not in this situation of being one, one false move away from, from a major problem. Yeah, and I think what you've, you've also kind of alluded to is the opportunity as a woman to be here in a CEO role in the cybersecurity. And there's been a lot of effort the last couple of years. Uh, I work with SANS. SANS has had some events where we're trying to go ahead and promote opportunities for a career pattern. And some guys are going to say, well, well why, should, why should women get special opportunities? Because, because guys, you kind of eliminated them from the opportunities 15, 20 years ago. You just weren't welcome to play at the game. And so it was sort of a self-inflicted wound. We left out 50% of the brain power. And you can categorize that across any other type of uh, I don't know if discrimination might be too strong of a word, but uh, discouragement is probably 
probably a better term. So as you see it as a woman in this industry, if things get any better, that is to say in 2021, is it more welcoming, more accommodating, and more accepting for you as a professional woman, as a leader, as a person with a great vision uh, to go forward than it was maybe when you first started out in your career? Have we come in? Have we made any progress? Yeah, yeah. I think there's been some progress. I mean, well, certainly just acknowledging that this is an issue that needs to be addressed is, is a, a move in, in the right direction. Um, I have definitely, when I was on the operational side, remember days where you know, I'd be one of 10 or one of 15 and I'd be the only, only woman in, in the whole SOC. And um, that, that was kind of the norm for me. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think now there, there is at least a tension around the fact that that is the case. And so there is much more of an, an effort to, to try to change that. But there is the problem, though, that women who are thinking about entering the field know that they could be one of 10 or one of 15, and it's, it's not that comfortable to them. And, and just the thought of that is, is enough to discourage them from, from wanting to be in that environment. And I, I can understand why, why that that could be the case. Uh, for me, I just said, you know, people could be great to work with or miserable to work with no matter what their gender is. And um, you know, I just tried to find work environments where I, I thought the, the people were, were productive and, and intelligent. But it, for, I can see how, how that would discourage people, uh, discourage women and, and cause them to think twice about being in the industry. And so I think there's definitely still work that needs to be done to, to make it clear that, yeah, yes, even if the, you are one of, of 15, you'll soon be, you know, four of, of, of 20. So, so it's going to improve. And, and even though it's one of 15, it, you're going to be working around people where that's not an issue. And you're really all just focused around the mission and and being the the most productive employees that can be and and that's it, it's not going to cause any any uncomfortableness but there's there's definitely st- still work to be done and i i think as a related issue there's also the thinking for for many women who are are not in the industry that because there are so few women in the industry, in order for them to get a job in, in the industry, they need to have so much better credentials than a guy who is coming in for the same position. And I think there are even some some surveys that that confirm this, where if you look at women at, at different levels within cybersecurity, they generally have either more years of experience or more education for, for that same band. And so there is, there's this, this 
this thinking for, for people who are trying to enter the field that that's going to be the case. And then I, I'm pretty sure there's data that, that supports that. So then it, it makes it even more discouraging. And, and I can't tell you how many women I've talked to that want to be in, in cybersecurity. And, I'm, and we have this enormous shortage, workforce shortage. And I say, just go for it. Just start applying for jobs. And they say, no, 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 no. I have to wait until after I have a master's in cybersecurity. And then I think I'll be able to get jobs. And I mean, in general, I discourage anyone from, from spending more time in school than, than just getting into the cybersecurity workforce right now because there is such an intense demand and because you end up learning everything on the job anyway. You're going to have to learn that stack on the job. You're going to have to learn about threats as they come in because they're constantly changing. You have to be in, in this perpetual mode of learning regardless. So instead of spending the time in, in school learning, just get in on the job and, and start learning there. But that is that is not the approach that that some people want to take. And that goes for both employees and employers. And I am always, mm-hmm. always trying to encourage employers to just hire people that are willing to learn and have the aptitude to learn quickly. Those are the ones you want to hire, regardless of they, whether they have any background in the industry or not. If they are willing to learn, they will figure it out and they need to have that skill set to be successful anyway. And I think you hit on it absolutely. You hire for attitude, not for knowledge. And as I mentioned a couple other shows, years ago, I wrote something I described as GMARC's law. Half of what you know about security will be obsolete. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, the thing is, if you go to university, get a degree, usually the ossification that's taken place in those bureaucracies about being able to update your curriculum is such that by the time you can finally field it, it's nearly out of date again. And it's not like a chemistry class or a math class that, well, nothing's changed in 300 years. It still does the same stuff. And and so as a result, it's sort of like a moving around. Just hop in. And you're absolutely right about the education and the background and things such as that. Hands-on experience is something you can gain. And even if you don't have a lot of experience, there's a lot of apprenticeship programs. There's security education that's available. Uh, as I say, I, I spend some of my time as a SANS instructor, so I'll plug them a little bit because they do an outstanding job of providing stuff. But that's expensive, and not yeah. everybody can afford that. But yet you can go to Udemy and some other places where uh, a bunch of YouTube videos are just go and go to a B-Sides or something local and just show up. I think it was Woody Allen said 80% of success is just showing up. And don't just go there to be part of the scene, go there to learn. And very quickly, I think people will differentiate themselves by their willingness to learn. And a lot of people in the security world are kind of happy to show off what they know. If someone walked up and said, hey, G-Mark, what are you doing? And could you show me how to do that? Because I'd really like to learn. I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say, okay. And as long as you track along well, you're going to attract people like that. So from just get involved is an important thing. What about the thought of a career mentor? Is there a value in being able to find somebody who could kind of not necessarily pull strings for you, but is a few years farther down the line who could provide a little bit of insights and if you will, some wisdom to help you from making mistakes that could be done improperly, not because you'd want to make a mistake, but you just didn't know better. But I think 
with the mentorship opportunities, you can actually reduce the likelihood of an unforced error. And so would you recommend that you know, women or anybody getting into the cybersecurity career look and seek out to find a career mentor? And if so, how would they, how would they start that process? Well, so you're, you're asking someone who's pretty much never had a mentor. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and you've done fine. So obviously, it's not a requirement, but it's well, kind of a so, nice to I have. Mean, and, but I've made my my fair share of mistakes. Certainly, maybe some of that could have been avoided with with a mentor. Maybe not. Uh, maybe it would have made different mistakes. I, I don't really know. I realistically, I was probably ten years into my career before I even really understood the concept of a, of a mentor. So it's it's never something that that's been uh, a big factor for for me on that side. I I do love mentoring people in in, in the industry now, though. Um, you know, women that are trying to get into cybersecurity and women that are trying to get into entrepreneurship. And and actually, it's not just women; it's men and women who want to get into the industry or, or get into entrepreneurship. I, I'm always very happy. To, to provide lots of advice. I think that that can be helpful, but it really depends on the situation. There are times when you can overthink something. And if you're going to a mentor for, for feedback on, on every decision, then it's it's a little harder to to take action sometimes it it really depends on the situation and 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 also you could get steered in the wrong direction because at the end of the day no one understands you and and your passions and your your goals better than you do and so you can get some some information that may help you with solidifying that but but sometimes mentorship is is not as as helpful as it is thought to be and and it can take you in the wrong direction and it's also not the same as sponsorship you know so sponsorship is someone that's actually going to try to pull you up and mentor is just giving advice and I don't want this to come across though as I'm anti-mentorship because I'm really not. And I think there are plenty of, of instances where it's it's super valuable. Because so I have one friend who he says he has basically a, a board of director for board of directors for for every aspect of his life, for on the career side and the personal side. And I think it also depends on the, the personality because for, for some people, they, they love all that input and they don't want to just jump in blindly. I kind of like to just jump in and, and see how it goes. That's just part of, of what makes it interesting to me. And I think that's really good insight because, again, for, for people who are hesitating or I'm not so sure I need to just yes, get in the career, yeah. just do it. Yeah. I mean, no one's ever going to discourage you for the rest of your life. Oh, I can't believe you applied for a job. I can't believe you took a job. I mean, do it. The worst they can do is say no. And, and one of the things I have put on the back of my business card is never disqualify yourself. Uh, I put yeah. a couple other little things of wisdom in there, but you know, I would love to keep talking because this is great. And I think we could probably do about a four hour <laughs> episode, but we've got to kind of stay within our time limit. This is like the longest interview <laughs> I've ever done. And I'm absolutely loving it. And 
Um, but I'd love to get you back for another episode and things such as that. So any thoughts as we kind of wrap up here that you'd like to leave everybody with in terms of either your insights or ideas, or if they want to learn more about what you're doing at Key Caliber? Uh, you know, yeah, you like. certainly if you want to learn more about Key Caliber, keycaliber.com has, has information and you can reach me directly at roselle at keycaliber.com and happy to, to tell you all about our, our technology. And for for people that are are thinking about entering the industry, I'd say just go for it. There is a tremendous workforce shortage. You don't need anything that you don't already have to to at least start moving in the direction for it. Don't question whether it's a good industry to go in because there is phenomenal opportunity, and this is an industry that is going to only grow by leaps and bounds in in the next years. And I'd say for people that are already in the industry, everyone should try to make an, an, an effort to recruit one person that they know into the industry, because that, that's part of how we're going to level this playing field, is, is we just get more talent and more, more brains working on, on solving these problems. And I love that challenge. And so for all of our listeners out here, let me add that and extend that challenge. Get one other person to listen to this episode. And again, if, if it's a woman you know who has an opportunity who is either hesitating or somebody starting their career, but anybody, I mean, just share the source of knowledge and wisdom that you get because what you're gonna find out is you can make a positive impact on people's lives that they may not see it initially, but maybe five or 10 years, they come back to you and go, wow, thanks. And I don't know if the podcast is gonna do that, but the whole concept of, of believing in yourself giving it a try and making stuff happen. So thank you very much, Roselle. This has been a really awesome opportunity to have some time to spend with you. Thank you for taking the time away. Uh, is uh, For everybody, this is G. Mark Hardy, your host at CISO Tradecraft. It's a pleasure to share all these insights with you and I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Until then, stay safe. Thank you for having me.